You're listening to The Interview, in-depth retailer interviews with inspirational people. You're listening to The Interview series with me, Carl McKeever. My guest on this episode is Andy Lawrence, VP International of the so-called athleisure brand Vawari. For all D2C brands, the model is, is different than it was you know, five or six years ago where you could acquire customers cheaply on Facebook and Instagram and have that be the primary outfront customer acquisition tool. Now, even more so, there's a return to needing a, a true omni-channel strategy to control the pace of that investment while you build a customer base. And if you think about a new market, almost all of your customers are new customers. The ratio of new to existing is, you know, 95.5 or 98.2. So with every new market, your customer acquisition cost, that problem of customer acquisition cost being more expensive is actually exacerbated. So from a timing standpoint, if now is your moment to expand and you have all new customers that are more expensive to acquire than before, it's just a more difficult landscape. So it's why for us, and um, you know, I think you're seeing this with some of the pure D2C brands who have pivoted, who have really pivoted, wholesale, strategic wholesale with great partners, I think is a, a definitely additive you know, component to the cocktail and also building a profitable retail model, which is important for many reasons other than profitability. It's fair to say that Andy has a well-travelled career in international retail, something that is standing him in good stead in his latest role. Founded in 2014 by collegiate athlete Joe Kudia, in September last year it launched into China, Hong Kong, Singapore, the Middle East and Mexico. But its plans for growth do not end there. In this episode we explore the story behind the brand's strategy for international expansion. Here's the episode. Andy, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Great to be here. Uh, I listened to a, a few of the podcasts on my walks with my dog and excited to catch up. So I'm going to ask, first of all, what does Viori translate as? Is there a direct translation? There is. Viori means mountain in Finnish. We're, we're big in the company on, on the idea of meeting each day with the rise and the shine. And that's a, an idea that evokes hiking and sort of starting and, and climbing and achieving something for the day. So our founder, eight years ago when the brand was founded, set it on that word. And in, in the back of his mind, Joe always had the idea that it would be a dual gender brand. So it made us very versatile, I think, in terms of where we can go with the business. And it means something special to us. And for those who are unfamiliar with the brand, just give us a quick overview there of the inventory. And I guess what is the sort of signature look of the apparel collection? The tagline is built to move in, styled for life. So all of our product is meant to work out in, is meant to you know go grab coffee in, is meant to go to the office in. But even the product that like what, you know what I'm wearing, I'm wearing a Strato Tech tee, which is our sort of maybe um, James Purse T-shirt equivalent. This will take you through a very hard workout, but also. You know, you can throw it under a, a track jacket and, and go out. So the, this idea of flexibility is a big part of the brand and, and, and of our product. The fabrics are what we're known for. It's incredibly soft. 
we, you know, when I go out and tell people about the brand or meet new wholesale partners, when I met Selfridges and Harrods in the UK for the first time, just giving them the product is actually our best sales tool because it is tactily so incredibly soft. So you combine that idea of softness with the flexibility and that pretty much cuts across the whole business. Um, the brand was originally men's only in 2015, 2019, early 2019, we added women's. And now the brand is a pretty much in all markets, including international, a 50-50 split men's and women's. So, uh, you know, having been at Ralph Lauren before, which was men's dominant, looking at Lululemon, which is women's dominant, you don't see a lot of brands that are able to launch with one gender and then become equally as successful. And you mentioned a moment ago that unlike somebody like Nike, which is pretty logo heavy and, and often the branding is one of the most visible and dominant parts of each of their pieces. Actually, at Vuri, it's almost the opposite. It's a very minimal, quite a neutral palette, you know, blacks, greys, stone, navy blue kind of colour. So this is a product which is quite versatile, but very firmly within that kind of athleisure category. A hundred percent. And it, it does come back to that coastal California idea where we wanted to be inspired by colors that you'd see in nature and that, that sort of beach and desert color palette that's, that, as you say, is a bit more subtle. We do have some brighter colors, but I would say it, it's not like the fluorescent um, sort of uh, shock your eye type of um, active wear that has been out there in the past. So yeah, definitely minimalist um, and also minimalist from a logo standpoint. So we, um, you know, we have recognizable logos uh, on all of our clothing, but you have to sort of know a bit about the brand and see it on some level a bit before you recognize that it's us. And, you know, I, I would say that that was also a big part of the evolution is just realizing that it was about what the brand stood for and the quality of the fabrics and not plastered with big logos. Is there a danger, though, that perhaps there's a bit of salami slicing going on here? Is that a similar kind of product, similar kind of activities, and people are generally trying to, you know, split a market which is relatively small in its own right, but actually for each brand, potentially smaller and smaller as you compete even harder with each other? It is a very crowded space, um, and particularly there are a lot of brands that, you know, in the past five years have popped up. I mean, there's a whole list in the U.S. that you could name of, of those D2C brands in our space. What I would say is that when you get to a certain scale and we're starting to get there, there's a critical mass, and, and our product is really addicting and and so loved and so viral in terms of how people view it and, and talk to their network about it. We've sort of gotten to a place where we've separated ourselves a bit from other competitors in the pack. Now, Lulu is a, is a, was out in front in all of the international markets with this category. They built the category. So Lulu's a massive business. We have a lot of respect for Lululemon. Um, I would say... The difference, again, back to what we were talking about a bit earlier, is we're 50% men's, 50% women's. So even if you set aside the product difference, which I think is there in terms of the softness of the fabric, in terms of the flexibility, the fact that we've been able to attract both men and women, um, you know, I think it, it does position us a bit differently than than other great brands like, like Lulu, like Aloe, um, 
and yeah, so it, it is a complicated space and a crowded space, but, but there's room definitely we're seeing for us in it. Talking about evolution, um, in your um, experience, and admittedly you haven't been there from day one, but how has the brand pivoted in recent times? Clearly adding women's wear as a lineup, but how else has the brand changed? I think on some level the biggest pivot was was early. Initially the brand was, was positioned to be a men's yoga brand, and then I think you know what, what happened is, is the founder and our chief marketing officer, Nikki, who'd been there from the beginning, you know, and our, our design team, they, they basically realized that that niche of, of men's yoga didn't speak to the totality of what Viore was becoming for people. So the biggest pivot initially was moving from men's yoga to being a men's brand and then to adding women's. I would say one of the things that makes Viore great is that while we evolve and learn and are growing incredibly fast, the... I would say since that initial positioning was locked in and the quality of the fabrics was locked in, we've added product families. We've added, you know, a much more broad range, but the foundational principles actually are, are really pretty, pretty consistent to what they were from a product standpoint, from a distribution standpoint, adding retail stores and expanding that rapidly um, it is, is definitely an evolution for the business. The business had only a handful of retail stores up until two years ago, and we're now adding, you know, 20 to 25 stores a year in the U S international expansion. My purview is also an evolution. You know, the brand really focused domestically for the first five years of its history. And, and I would say got to probably bigger a bigger size in the US than most brands when they expand internationally but was patient and and waited for the right opportunity and the right timing and so now if you look out i would say long term that's going to be those two trends of the rise of retail and also the evolution to a global business are are big big themes but with the same sort of core dna and product the brand clearly has its roots in um, South California. Why is it you think that that particular area or even spirit, why does that resonate with people so strongly around the world? It's a, it's a good question. And, um, and I can say what we're seeing is it does resonate, both when I was living there, not working for Viore in different parts of the world, um, primarily in Asia, but also just now as we expand it, this idea of... Coastal California lifestyle, I think, is very aspirational. People love the sunshine. They love being outdoors. I think post-COVID, the idea of being active and healthy and, uh, you know, physically engaging with your environment um, has a lot of resonance. And so Southern California and San Diego, where the brand's from, one of the most beautiful places to experience that. And so I think Viore really connects from that standpoint. And the ethos of the brand was actually that our founder had that inspiration of the coastal California lifestyle. And he was going surfing and, and doing yoga, but he felt like the product that was out there in the market to be active in didn't speak to that aesthetic. So you'd either sort of have to pick something like Nike, which had big logos, heavily reflective, probably not quite the same level of premium fabric or like a James purse, which is an amazing brand, but which is, you know, it's difficult to do a, a hit workout in. So I think 
the coastal California idea really resonates and also the idea of bringing that aesthetic through non-beach parts of your lifestyle is also something that we're seeing really resonating. My first exposure to the brand in store was actually at your pop-up in University Village in Seattle. And I just wondered whether pop-ups are part of this sort of almost test and learn strategy before you decide to launch a full-scale store. 100%. Um, and I would say pop-up is one iteration of what the strategy could look like from a retail standpoint um, because it's a it's a lower commitment, but you still get the exposure to the consumer in that area to see how you're going to perform. It's a good sort of segue into our next steps with international expansion. We are opening a pop-up in August in the Kerry Center in Shanghai. It's a mall that on running launched their China business with Lululemon, launched their China business with. And really, um, you know, we see as the best way to gauge our ability to be successful in China with a physical store. So definitely pop-ups are part of that strategy. I would say also, as we expand internationally, if you look at our London store, smaller footprint stores, even if they're not temporary, tend to be a great way for us to, in a responsible way, learn about the consumer. And then eventually, you know, we plan to expand, but our UK store is about a thousand feet. So it's not it's not really big and it, and it allows us as a pop-up does to be pretty nimble and also, um, you know, test, as you said, these markets. So as you think about building your international footprint, is there any particular criteria which influences the cities that you look for? We spent a lot of time. I, I joined the brand two years ago and, and had known the, the team and our founder for a bit before that. And as we talked early days about where we wanted to expand, because Viore really was a blank slate internationally with a little bit of a wholesale business in Canada, but beyond that, pretty much starting from scratch, we thought about markets that had a few characteristics. One being we saw product market fit and we were on some level um, surmising just based on our, our competitor set. Um, Lulu's a good comp that we look at, you know, where, where they've been successful. Also, for me, running international businesses for about 15 years, I've had, I guess, the, the, the benefit on some level of seeing businesses open in most of these territories and, and what actually happens in terms of the size of the business, the profitability uh, of it. So we wanted to pick markets that were sizable, that had a high ceiling where we thought we could be profitable. And also our international rollout strategy is very much predicated on the idea that we want to connect with the consumer across all channels. So this, this idea of omni-channel, it's sort of a buzzword, but for, for us, it's, it's, it's very important that we can find a market with great select wholesale standalone store opportunity and and dot com um so the best examples of that are um our uk business where, where you are we uh that was our, our sort of center point of our phase one launch and, and we're also ramping up in china amongst other territories but those two markets check all those boxes of product market fit size profitability and omni and as you look to grow internationally, is your model the owner and operating model or are you looking for partners with specialisms in different markets? Generally, we want to own our business in, in the key territories that we expand into. And we are trying to drive density of impact versus expanding and sort of you know, planting a flag across the earth. 
Um, so with that strategy, we are more able to, to own our own destiny and really build those relationships with our customers. The exception to that would be a market like South Korea, which we're launching in August. Um, I lived there for a few years with Ralph Lauren. It's a market that most brands will go through partners. Occasionally brands will go direct, but it's, it's very difficult because the, the partners own the distribution landscape in addition to bringing brands in. So um, a tough market to do directly. We'll do so. South Korea will do with a partner. Mexico will do with a partner. We've we found a great partner down there. But beyond that, if you look across the rest of Asia, the rest of Europe, we do plan to operate it directly. And um, we're seeing early that we've been able to attract great talent in these local markets, which is 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 a critical part of getting this started. And we think it'll you know it's definitely more work early on, but. Long term, we have such a big opportunity in in these omni-channel focused markets that we think capturing it ourselves is the way to go. I, I guess it absolutely is more work, and I imagine too it's similarly more cost. You know, especially when you're doing that international expansion, as you say, trying to get density within a particular country is very useful because, of course, you know you have shared services which you can get more value from. But what are some of the other greatest challenges for a DTC company like yourselves as they seek to expand right now? Good question. I think for us, and and this is different depending on the brand, but the biggest challenge we have internationally with expansion is brand awareness. It's that, you know, we have, you know, 2%, when I, when I started 2% of our traffic to our website, which is sort of a proxy for international awareness was coming from international markets. And so we really were starting from an early place in the international markets from a brand awareness standpoint. That's a problem that I would say most brands deal with, but it depends on whether they have a massive social media following or are you know backed by a celebrity who's who's out promoting the products. So you can have a sort of different ratio there. I would say that for all D to C brands, the model is is different than it was you know five or six years ago, where you could acquire customers cheaply on Facebook and Instagram and have that be the primary out front customer acquisition tool. Now, even more so, there's a return to needing a a true omni-channel strategy to control the pace of that investment while you build a customer base. And if you think about a new market, almost all of your customers are new customers. The ratio of new to existing is, you know, 95.5 or 98.2. So with every new market, your customer acquisition cost, that problem of customer acquisition costs being more expensive is actually exacerbated. So from a timing standpoint, if now is your moment to expand and you have all new customers that are more expensive to acquire than before, it's just a more difficult landscape. So it's why for us, and um, you know, I think you're seeing this with some of the pure D2C brands who have pivoted, who have really pivoted Wholesale, strategic wholesale with great partners, I think is a, a definitely additive you know, component to the cocktail and also building a profitable retail model, which is important for many reasons other than profitability, but also you know, needs to be part of that omni-channel cocktail. We look at building interest um, as an incremental 
process with with more of a relationship. So we haven't gone out and sponsored big celebrities. It's been more of an evolution, I guess, and uh, and an incremental build. And you know, I think that tone gets set by our founder, who is um, by nature. So he's a CPA by trade, and um, and just a very patient, deliberate person. So wanted the brand and the product to sort of speak for itself and and to to become something that found like-minded people and was was more viral than was a big moment where you know you raise the curtain and and talk about it so we do as we're getting bigger now like we had a, a big flagship open in soho in new york that was a big moment for the brand we had lots of press we took over all of the soul cycles in in new york when we opened our london store we did a big press tour with joe we had a num- we had a store opening event, but I would say it's it's you know you're not going to see us when we launch in China, for example, do something like what LV would do, where they'll partner with Angelina Jolie or Brad Pitt and um, and spend two million dollars on an event. We're we we um, we like to build that over time. Yeah, I am available and I have a passport. <laughs> We could have a fun trip. It's uh, it's a buzzing place. It's a very you know it was a very welcoming place, and and they're really excited for Viore. So we, um, you know, we 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 wondered would the Chinese consumer react to our our brand and our ethos? We talked about it not being a heavily logoed product. That historically has mattered in China, although there's a trend away from that now. Um, but what we found both in like just observation, going to fitness classes, meeting people in the market, looking at our, you know, the mall that we're going to be in Cary Center is that our timing and the trends in China are aligning amazingly. We, we um, you know, interesting anecdote, we got a, a brief from our social media firm about the trends in China post COVID and the trends were outdoor living. They, they estimate uh, 300 million people will be doing some form of active activity this year. Clean aesthetic with, you know, with clothing and with how you set up your home. Casual office wear. So, you know, it was almost like the social media brief was written with our brand in mind. So, yeah, we're, we're um, I would say, you know, as we dip our toe into China and as we start to think about building that business, we're, we're pretty optimistic that the reception for everyone yeah, you know, Viore is going to be going to be really positive over there. So China's coming soon. What what are some of the dangers, though, perhaps of you know being possibly overly conservative in the way that you look at international expansion and profitability? As you say, it's not just about planting flags in some very exciting international cities, but similarly, if you if you hold back, possibly maybe you miss opportunities. How do you stand on this kind of this tension? I guess. To me, it's it's really about being right or, um, you know, if you're wrong, adjusting quickly about where the biggest opportunities are and getting into those select markets that you focus your attention on uh, as early as is practical for the organization. And so I think that doesn't keep me up at night because I, I, I do see that the UK and China and South Korea, where we're launching, are big markets where the brand seems to resonate. And I think we're moving, we're not in a rush, but we're moving pretty quickly to get into the markets where we're being very patient 
is with the pace with which we scale up. So we want to see proof of concept in those key markets that we talked about, and then we'll increase investment. And, um, you know, the key thing is that there's a ceiling to increase it a lot over time, but we're really waiting for each of those markets to develop early. The markets outside of the ones that we define as a priority I've just been I just seen that seen that movie a couple times at different places and I know that you know we could have a store in Vietnam but I've seen a store open in Vietnam and then get closed you know 3 years later because the brand didn't have Shanghai figured out or didn't have Beijing figured out didn't have Seoul figured out so I think it's really about getting into the biggest opportunity markets early learning being conservative with the investment, but making it probably a season or two before. So that's where the aggressiveness comes in. But then a lot of patience letting the data come in about what the consumer likes and doesn't, and then scaling up versus putting store two and three and four, you know, on the board before you realize that store one works. And I guess there's always the danger in any kind of any international expansion, especially as you say, where perhaps the consumer awareness is not as strong, perhaps, as it is in your home market or where you've been established for longer. What might start well and have a very buoyant opening can tail away. And I think we've seen that recently in the numbers coming from Allbirds. You know, they've had a very strong international mm. opening. And maybe some of the stores that they've had, some of that consumer enthusiasm has started to wane. Yes, you could say that there might be other issues there. Perhaps it's about the product pipeline. Maybe it's about some of the international marketing that goes with it. But how do you keep that momentum going? As you say, you know, bring the circus to town, spend a ton of money, open a beautiful store. Everybody from the central team slaps themselves on the back and says, great job, guys. And then 18 months later, everyone's scratching their heads and say, what do we do now? The one thing that I'm not worried about, which is a massive luxury with, with Viore, is that once people touch and feel the product, they're going to come back. We see that in our numbers. We have twice the share of sales coming to our London store that we did uh, three months ago. So we're, our repeat rate has doubled. Our repeat rate's growing substantially online. We're getting a lot of feedback that that's happening in the department stores as well. So I think the product is good enough that it's it's really... To me, not a concern that it will die out because it's it's not about the the flashy marketing. It, it's about the product, and and we know in this industry that's what long term wins. So, confidence level for the team and um, you know and, and for me expanding internationally is super high. That if we put it in the right hands, it's going to work. It's sort of the analogy I like to give is like car salesman. He knows that if he sends you a pamphlet about a Porsche, you probably have a 2% chance or a 1% chance of buying it. But if he gets you to do a test drive of the Porsche, then you probably have a 40% chance of buying it. Our product's like that. You know, every time people wear it, work out in it, live in it, they love it. So I'm much more worried about getting investment out in front of the brand awareness than I am about it sort of dying out. And I think we have that luxury that some other brands may not. We just, we have a real game-changing product. So tell us, Andy, about your career journey. You've mentioned some time at Ralph Lauren, but what else, yeah. um, what else is in your own back catalog, as it were? Yeah, so it's been a, a series of, um, I would say, connected sort of 
it, from a theoretical standpoint, but industry-wise, um, it took me a little bit of time to get to retail. I started uh, out of school working for a, an industrial supply company, uh, but but one that had this really interesting management training program, very similar to like uh, the the setup of the business is similar to Toyota, where they have this just-in-time inventory idea. Um, so it was all about you know learning a business and how it worked and making it more efficient. Did that for a couple of years. My best friend from college, uh, Jordan, asked me to start a business with him. Uh, so we started a, a venture-backed company that enabled high-end fine art, in f fractional high-end fine art. So you and three friends like Picasso, we created a way for you to move it and uh, own it with, uh, with other people. 2009 and that recession hit, so timing was bad. And um, and I think on some level, people didn't like the idea of sharing art, even though it was a good business idea. So good learning. It's all about the customer from that from that journey. Then I um, I met the CEO of Dean and DeLuca, maybe 15, 16 years ago, Mark Daly, who took me under his wing and, and brought me into that business as it was restructuring and starting to expand internationally ran international projects and um, partnerships for Dean and DeLuca. Then he moved to be the president of Asia Pacific for Ralph Lauren, right as Ralph had bought back all the licenses from the various partners in Japan, South Korea, Southeast Asia. So he asked me, you know, do you want to move to Hong Kong? I visited once and, um, and loved it. And the next trip was moving out there, ran business development and real estate for Asia for three years all across the region. Met my wife in Hong Kong, um, so she's, she's from there. And, um, and, and always wanted to run a business, always thought that that was you know, where my future lied and, and loved you know, leading teams. And um, they sent me to Taiwan to run that business, then South Korea to run the retail business there as the Taiwan business started to grow. Um, so I had a great, great seven years, six and a half years with Ralph Lauren, then joined Reese, who's in your, your backyard, um, and ran international for four and a half years there, had a, a really good experience, and, and then met Joe and stayed in, in touch with him for about a year. And, you know, early days, he said, we're not ready for international, we're still, you know, we're still too small. Then the pandemic hit, the brand exploded, and, uh, and yeah, the rest is history. You mentioned a moment ago, and I think it was not intended to be tongue-in-cheek, that it's all about the customer. Um, but what have yeah. been some of your greatest lessons? You know, look, if you look at all of that career experience you've got, international, property, business development, and now retail, what are, what are some of the biggest things that stand out and say, well, this matters? You know, there are a lot of truisms, I guess, in, in retail. Um, but, and, and there, you know, a little bit of cliches, but they, it, it ends up being um, the truth. So I would say, yeah, what I said about the customer, it's really about the product, I should say. So it's about the customer's relationship to the product. And Biore is the best product I've ever come into contact with in my space. So, you know, absolutely about the product. I think patience is another key learning for me as a guy that likes to get things done and, and move with pace, just realizing that you don't, you, you need to sort of let the game come to you and to use a sports analogy and grow with the customer versus trying to be out in front of them. So I think absolutely, you know, patience 
is a is a big learning and focus. Uh, you know, I think on some level, retail can become about ego and about planting a flag and being everywhere and being global. So, you know, as I think about international expansion, it, there's almost more danger in the little things that you do than the big things back to our earlier conversation. You know, it's those little things distract people and mean that even though you've got a little bit of business in one partner or one country that, you know, you don't see a big future with, you slow down your pace of, of building a business in Shanghai or the US or whatever it is. So, so yeah, I would say those are, those are three learnings. And my, my personal um, learning in terms of my career is just don't take middle ground steps, go straight for what you really want and what you believe in. So that for me started when I reached out to my mentor at, at Dean and DeLuca and said, Hey, I, you know, I, I'd love to work for you. I want to, I want to run a business someday instead of going to business school to learn how to run a business and then, you know, trying to position myself, just trying to, you know, spend the extra effort to go straight for it. And, and with Viore, it was the same, just loved the brand, wanted to get in touch with Joe and be a part of it. And, um, and so, yeah, that, that's my, my personal sort of North star with, with my career. So there's two questions which I want to roll together, really. What are your key priorities for the rest of 2023? But importantly, next year, what can we expect? Have you got some big things planned? So the rest of this year for us internationally, there are three key launches. So we've got China and the pop-up. So really opening our omni-channel business in August. We're opening in South Korea with the Shinsegi Group in the fall and our Mexico partnership. So we've got three new country launches that we're focused on. We're also, the UK is where everything started with us internationally and it's, it's going to be a focus for a long, long time. We want to build proof of concept in the UK. And then as a business, you know, we're, we, we've spent a lot of time and the team and Joe deserve a lot of credit for this building out our executive team and really, you know, catching up from a, from a systems and operation standpoint. So a lot of that is coming to fruition this year and, um, and we'll get to leverage next year. Um, but we're just, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of trying to be out in front and thoughtful as much as we can, but, you know, really keeping up with the pace of our growth is, is almost a, a big thing you know, the big thing always uh, in and of itself. So trying to stay true to what we believe in and um, and just keep going for the ride because it's been uh, so far pretty incredible. And you're clearly a very busy guy, Andy. I mean, you know, launches here, not just in one country, but, you know, pan-continent. This is a global role that you're, you're running here. What do you do to switch off? You mentioned earlier that you're listening to the Retail Exchange podcast, Walking the Dog, which I can only... Well, that... You know, <laughs> incredible. <laughs> you, 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 you seem like a good guy, Carl, but I, that, was a, that was a prep. I'll probably listen to it now because we've had this chat, but that was just, uh, that was work. But um, switching off, you know, I love, I got a four-year-old who's a ton of fun to play with. Uh, so my wife, Jess, and, and I spent a lot of time hanging out with him and exploring and I'm a big basketball fan, love to play guitar, do a little meditation every morning to try to slow down as I start the day. So pretty, pretty usual stuff, but I'm a really, I get antsy if I don't work out every day. So there's always some fitness component to switching off for me. 
Well, uh, you have the most exceptional product to, to choose from. So um, you are the man with the gear. <laughs> Andy, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Retail Exchange podcast. You've got so much coming up. I can only look out for more stores as they pop up around the world. Thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange podcast. Thanks for listening. 